It's kind of difficult when you talk about autism because on the one hand, it's uh, I think it's really kind of cool that we've reached a point of like, we're not going for understanding. We're going for uh, what we like to call neurodiversity, which is understanding uh, different uh, different nice. modes of... Uh, no, Accepting uh, like, different. Exactly. Uh, thought patterns, uh, ways of yeah. thinking. And I think that's really cool. I, I just think the thing to acknowledge with ASD is that there are still things to navigate. You're listening to The Sill Podcast, perspectives on art and technology with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 106, The Undefinable Spirit, Michael McCreary, Punching Up, Never Down. Welcome to another edition of the Sill podcast and our undefinable spirit section. Our special guest today is Michael McCreary. Now, Michael may only be 23, but he's already well on his way to fulfilling his lifelong, albeit short, dream of becoming a stand-up comedian. The young comic, a high school grad from Orangeville, Ontario, was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome at the age of five. In an act of self-preservation, combined with the desire for constant attention and the inability to stop talking, stand-up comedy seemed inevitable. Michael combined his love of comedy and his obsession with Hollywood movies and trained under David Grainier, founder of Stand Up for Mental Health, to create his act, Does This Make My Asperger's Look Big? Over the past seven years, Michael has performed at conferences, galas, universities, bars, and church basements across Canada and the United States. His philosophy for living... If you do what you love, it's not work. Always punch up, never down. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming. Now, my first question has to do with your philosophy. How is it that you've come to this very positive way of approaching the challenges that you've faced as an Aspie? Uh, you know, a lot of people uh, get into the arts because uh, they're bullied or something. So uh, to me, uh, I was no stranger to it. And uh, I was just looking for something to do because uh, I wasn't doing well in any of my courses. You know, I was failing in uh, math especially. And so my folks just wanted to give me something that I could uh, try out to see if I liked it or if I was even good at it. And uh, there was this wonderful program uh, called the Stand Up for Mental Health program being offered out of uh, Guelph, I think. I don't know if you mentioned David Granier just there. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. awesome. Yeah, he, so that was his program, and he uh, taught mm -hmm. me everything. He uh, took me under his wing. He was great. And in about two months' time, I was performing in university pubs. It was really fun. Well, so he was your first sort of mentor in that regard? Yes, he was. Oh, cool. That's cool. And who else have you been sort of inspired by in your journey? There's been some really cool moments, uh, like uh, Dave Hempstead has been a really good role model for me, who uh, I don't know if you guys know him. He's a great Canadian comic. Mm -hmm. uh, he's really good. I'll actually be performing with him at uh, Accent on Toronto this October, which is really exciting. That's never, neat. I've yeah. never been on the docket with him before, so this right. is really fun. Wow. So I've really liked him. I really liked Norm Macdonald growing up. <sighs> Not at all my kind of style, but I, I just really respect his uh, fearlessness. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, and mm -hmm. his honesty. And you've been doing this stand-up comedy since you were 18. 
actually younger. I uh, came straight out of that program and uh, doing like university shows. And I got my first AGM, I think, when I was 15 years old. Oh, uh, okay. I'm so sorry, Peter. We were talking about this uh, before we actually started recording. And it was sure. just about how yeah, when an Aspie likes something, they could ramble on about it ad nauseum. So for me, it's uh, my interests were in performing and in, uh, and in pop culture and in uh, stand-up. And like that's the perfect forum for it because that's an environment where a bunch of people are forced to sit there and listen to a guy talk. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it was a niche entirely predicated on uh, talking. Mm. And it's worked out so far. It's been really fun. And how would you describe your style of comedy? I'm pretty pragmatic. I do a lot of corporates, usually in the uh, winter and spring. And so uh, in that environment, it's kind of subject to change. And when I'm yep. talking about corporates, I really mean more like charity-based events and autism-related events. So uh, you could be talking to any group of people from like teachers, educators, parole officers. You don't know who you're going to be talking to and you sort of conduct yourself accordingly. So you like to have material that's pretty malleable that isn't totally dependent on uh, the pace at which you speak. So sometimes you'll be very dry. Sometimes you'll be very uh, excitable and uh, for lack of a better word, loud. Yeah, It it really depends. And actually as a fun experiment, it's really fun seeing uh, how comics engage with the room uh, depending on the size. I mean, you look at a, this is kind of an extreme example, but there's like this one really interesting doc that's just like when Richard Pryor was just starting to get big and it's him in a, in a comedy club clearly put off by the fact that there are cameras there seeing what he's doing for the first time. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's so self-conscious versus seeing him on one of those like kind of theatrically released performances that he'd uh, put out where he's really kind of... Uh, the mugging isn't the right word, but he's clearly like really digging himself and everyone that's mm. around him. And a lot of people are like that. Now, here's another little question, a side question. I've seen you perform and you're really terrific. And audiences, 99.9% of the time, no doubt, get you. What happens when they don't get you? What happens when you quote unquote bomb? Well, you said How do that, you handle that? You said there's a 0.1% that doesn't like me, so I want to hear your... Uh... <laughs> I'm guessing that the, not everybody will get Peter. you, right? <laughs> Peter. Like no, I'm, guess, I'm not guessing that not everybody will get you, right? So what happens no. when you don't get the response you think you should have gotten? Oh, you soldier on. Here's the thing. It's not your job to have people laugh at your jokes. It's your job to entertain. And then oh, that sounds okay. really uh, kind of harsh, but I'm like, if people don't like you, uh, you, you have to think of something fast. Like, yeah. Just soldier on to the next bit. And I've never like outright bombed. I think the, uh, uh, the worst gig that I ever did, um, it was a office Christmas party in yeah. uh, North York. Mm. And I was supposed to go on at 8 p.m. I didn't go on till about uh, like a quarter to midnight. Ooh. It was a really weird gig because uh, right as uh, I was about to get on stage, the MC came up to me and said, about 30% of these people speak English. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> and they wanted 45 minutes. And oh I did my, my 45 minutes. But it was like everything about it was really off-putting. Like there was two spotlights, but they were shaped like triangles so when they were shone on me at the same time i looked like i was trapped in a kryptonian prison and i was just like general zod just screaming like get me out of here and like i couldn't you know you just have to stick with the time yeah and i was also conscious of the fact that it was starting to blizzard outside so i this might be the last thing i do before i die and you know what i feel like i deserve this so like that so like you just be a good soldier and you do your job and yeah. while you're on the subject of whatever it is that you're expressing to your audience, are there any lines that you won't cross or any subject matter that you consider taboo? Yeah, well, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah, that's a cop-out. But like, but like you said, it's uh, it's interesting about when people talk about like who can and cannot talk about taboo subject matter, you know? Mm, yeah. And it's uh, like I prescribe to the philosophy that you can talk about almost anything so long as you're tactful. And uh, for me, it really comes down to it's not like will other people be uncomfortable. It's that I go, can I 
do this at the height of my intelligence? Like, am I operating at the height of my intelligence? Because you don't want the punchline to be the subject itself. You want to actually say something like uh, say what you want about Seinfeld. And this might be the reason that a lot of people sort of see that, like, uh, the wiring of an autistic brain is actually very well suited uh, to stand up, is that you're all about observing minutiae. I think what he said, the quote I'm paraphrasing here was, the average person notices the headline and goes, that's outrageous. Uh, A comic looks at the font and goes, that's outrageous. So like, um, and and, and it all comes back to that. So it's like, unless you have something to say that no one else has said before about this thing, unless there's any specificity or... uh, or sincerity about how you want to approach it. If you're just approaching it because you want to do a bit about this thing, then it's like, it might not land. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other thing I want to talk about is really just stuff that gets me too angry. Cause like uh, the fun thing about comedy is that it's all about clash of contact. You take any good comic premise and that's like opinion subject. And then you add the fact that you go, okay, so the more over the top a reaction to a really banal subject, the, the better a response it will mm. be because people go, why do you care this much about uh, airplane food? As an example, just like as, sure. stupid, like as hacky as that is, they just go, they're laughing because you care about something. No one else does. It's the show about nothing principle. And then you, uh, Sorry, I'm just uh, losing my train yeah, of thought right here. No, 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 Cut no this problem. out. No, it's <laughs> no worries. fine. Just, uh, we're just talking about taboos and lines you might not cross. Yeah, right. And yeah. so I was, sir, uh, and uh, I, uh, I think I'm just beating around the bush because I'm making sure I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not going to say it. So, like, <laughs> so uh, I'm going to say something. <laughs> <laughs> I it's wish okay. that was mine. That was like James Adomian's uh, like Bernie bit. No, but, but I have another like, question for you. you. Don't worry about it. You're, you're in good shape. This is oh, great. But let me, let me ask you this, Michael. Were you born in Orangeville? No, I was not. I was born in Brampton. Okay, but you've lived in Orangeville for a long time. You've seen uh, most of your life. Yeah. Is that right? What's it like growing up in a small town and what are the challenges mm-hmm. to your current career because of that? I, I moved. Okay. There you go. <laughs> you overcame the challenge problem. by moving. Yeah, so yeah, I got out of here. It's okay. fine. It's working great. Okay, <laughs> so so the opposite question. Yeah. Okay. Did it benefit you in any way? Uh, to move away? To, to, a home? to have been raised in a small town. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, it's something to talk about. You know, it's mm. like a, the difficult thing about coming into a metropolitan city is that everybody's gone out to like a comedy show at some point or been exposed to something where... Uh, what I mean to say is that when you're from a, fall, a small town, even though it's like 90 minutes away from Toronto, mm-hmm. people still treat you like you're foreign. In yeah. a sense where they go like, uh, and I, I don't mean because you're visibly foreign, but the, yeah, but they yeah. treat the subject of like, oh, they do things differently. Like, and, and right. even if what you're saying isn't wholly true, a lot of the time in stand up, it's not, people are more inclined to go along with it because, uh, it's kind of like about how, uh, my friend and I were talking about the big Lebowski recently. And I said, why do you think they set that story in like the late eighties, mm. uh, not just make it contemporary. Cause there's nothing in it. There's that reference of George Bush and you're going like, we will not stand this, uh, this oppression in Kuwait. And then I go, well, why do you think that's in there? Like, is there any greater comment on that? And he said, no, I think they just put that in there so that people would be more inclined to accept the BS <laughs> right. or like the weirdness, sort of a cushion of like, oh, it's a long, t- this happened a decade ago in the same way that in standup, like you go, oh, this happened to me in some place you've never been to people go oh yeah sure i've been to a place that you know i didn't want to go to before or grew up in a place that was far away and uh, no one could really understand or relate to yeah but the benefit to coming back to a small town after living in the city for a while is again uh you can't dunk on toronto the way that you would be able to living there in the same way that you wouldn't dunk on orangeville if you live here right and so uh if you went to any place that wasn't where you grew up you could probably dunk on it all you want in the same way that you could dunk on that place if you went to another place and it would go over well because people go hey that's not us let's laugh at them yeah, and that's right. like i'm glad to know i'm not always getting the short end of the stick and people connect to that <laughs> what about dealing with audiences having autism does it affect you any more or less than a regular comedian in terms of the 
audience that you confront? Yeah, in the early going, uh, what was really kind of difficult is, uh, I, I don't know if you guys have looked into it, but uh, one of the big characteristics of ASD, you get two things. Uh, you have really intense fixations and sort of a, I won't call it like a social naivete, but a difficulty reading people. And I don't think it comes down to a lack of empathy. It's actually too much to the degree that you can't uh, engage with people. I kind of equate it to like Dr. Manhattan in The Watchmen, where he like looks at someone and he sees their past, present, and future simultaneously. Uh-huh. And so like when you have ASD, you're not, sorry, I, I've managed to rise to the mic anyways. <laughs> oh, sit above it. Uh, I'm sitting on my knees now, but like, <laughs> it's very embarrassing. Get up, never, get never up, describe Michael, it, get like, up. None of us are wearing pants. <laughs> and like it's just Peter told me to come to his house. And I, That's I true. Said, you like it's an idiot? True. I said yes. It's exactly so, what's happened. And I took a drink from him when I should have just said no. And now here I am. So are you mm-hmm. using then can I say this? Are you using yeah. a different sense than quote unquote normals when you meet somebody? Is there a different sense that you're drawing upon? A sixth sense? No. Yeah, it's like, like it's an not, intuitive something. No, it's, it's, it's not even like a superpower. It's, uh, it's, oh, it's come actually, on. It's sure kind, it is. No, it's not. It's, it's kind of uh, what, what's sort of detrimental about it is that when you look at people, it's not like being an empath. It's that you're going like, okay, I'm just reading into every, you know. Uh, Nuance. My, yeah, yeah. Uh, micro behavior. Okay. And that's when it becomes difficult because you're not actually focusing on the fact that maybe they just have a twitch. Maybe they, they do right. uh, just have something going on with themselves that like or some unconscious behavior. In the same way that like my girlfriend always joke that I have a, uh, I don't know if we can swear. Can we swear on this? Or yeah, you can. Uh, very briefly, but like she says, I have a resting bitch face. And so like, and I'm not conscious of that because it's like what your face defaults to. So like, I'll kind of be like, yeah, like, which, which of course they can't see. So I don't even know why I brought it up. I have but, a uh, friend with Parkinson's who has the same issue. Okay. So like, so, so <laughs> we all have resting bitch faces. At <laughs> anyway, yeah, carry yeah, on. Sure. I mean, you guys see, you guys haven't stopped smiling this entire time. So I don't know if you know what that means. No, it's like, I do know what that you're means. You're all very pleasant. So, uh, yeah. but, uh, but again, it's like, uh, so like y- y- there are things that people do unconsciously, uh, that aren't a response to, uh, something that you've said or done. Like they're not tuning out but again you might intuit it that way and so like i was the only comic about to go on and right before i was about to go on i'd hear people kind of like turning to each other and snickering and i go like what's so fucking funny yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is ironic that's interesting that's you know job. what you know what michael i was talking to a, a teenager about 10 years ago and the subject of autism came up and you know what he said to me he said Autism, that consciousness is the consciousness of the future. It's yeah. a future consciousness that people quite, can't quite handle now because it's of the future. What do you make of that? <laughs> I, I'm a, I, I think good for him. You know, it's just a, it's kind of difficult when you talk about autism because on the one hand, it's, uh, I think it's really kind of cool that we've reached a point of like, we're not going for understanding. We're going for uh, what we like to call neurodiversity, which is understanding uh, different, uh, different nice. modes of... Uh, no, Accepting uh, like, different. Exactly. Uh, thought patterns, uh, ways of yeah. thinking. And I think that's really cool. I, I just think the thing to acknowledge with ASD is that there are still things to navigate. The difficult kind of thing is that ASD is a spectrum. And there are people like my little brother who had to sort of deal with things that uh, that he couldn't articulate because he was nonverbal. He had a lot of uh, toileting and gut-related issues. Because, again, there's a lot of uh, intersectionality between, say, ASD and a lot of sort of Crohn's-related type stuff. And so I think what sort of people discount sometimes is that it's like, on the one hand, I am really sympathetic to the fact that it's like, hey, we're here. And I think we need to go past the point of awareness to acceptance. And that's my belief as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. However, I think the difficult thing is that some people in the ASD community have sort of a habit of uh, speaking on behalf of those that actually do require extra support and uh, 24-7 support. And I think as a result, a lot of uh, educators and a lot of parents actually get guff from people in the ASD community. Box, box. 
He's got Asperger's syndrome, a high-functioning form of autism. And while he comes across as exhaustively upbeat, being a social misfit who yearns to connect with those around him is the real story behind his extraordinary shtick. And finally, I settled on this whole stand-up thing, which was a difficult call for me, because all my life I've had this fear that people were staring at me and laughing. <laughs> he realized when he's on stage making fun of himself, he could get the last laugh. Oh, uh, what I get out of it. It's interesting because comedy is one of the only mediums that uh, turns failure into a strength, you know, turns it into a weapon that you can use uh, to entertain people. So it's really, uh, it's amazing that I've just been able to turn like a lot of uh, really sad, some kind of traumatic life experience into something for me that, uh, that people can laugh at, you know. <laughs> Does it help you? It does. I think it's a therapeutic experience. When I go out there on stage, it's less so like a comedy show and more like group therapy where everyone else is too polite to tell me to shut up. <laughs> box, box. Caretakers of people with autism or Asperger's, should they be given some special treatment as well in terms of the amount of work that is required on their part? Yeah, totally. You mean me to uh, caretakers? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's uh, it's atypical of most other jobs. And I'm talking about caretaking in general when it comes to uh, helping out anyone with any kind of neurological variation, if sure. like Down syndrome, uh, fetal alcohol syndrome, ASD, whatever it may be. Uh, it doesn't matter what the diagnosis or their assessment is. You're dealing with an individual through and through. It's like the Stephen Shore quote. You met one person with autism, you met one person with autism. And mm. so the demands of your job are elastic. And uh, you need to be something so specific for this person. Mm -hmm. uh, Maddie's caretaker, a very close family friend of ours. We love him. Still good, uh, good friends with him. Again, he recognized that the demands of his job were going to be incredibly specific because Maddie needs very specific things, you know? Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I think those people should be definitely uh, accommodated for and, and helped out because like uh, sometimes you'll be working irregular hours. Sometimes you'll be... Uh, Forced to kind of make like split second decisions, uh, life or death decisions to help people because again, someone might try to uh, go as extreme as to throw themselves out of a car, whatever it may be. Sure. Exactly. And that's a very extreme instance. And that might come down to an issue with executive function, not because of any sort of like uh, death drive impulse. I think that caretakers need to be accommodated for. I think families need to be accommodated right. for. Uh, and, I, and I think the individuals uh, more than anyone need to be accommodated for. So while you're speaking about that, I'm really curious about something. Now, you mentioned your own situation and you mentioned your brother's situation. Mm. Is there any connection to either of your parents? Are either of your parents compromised in any way? Uh, well, even then, I wouldn't uh, call it like a compromise. Uh, and it's not an insult. It's no, just no, a, I understand. I'm sorry. It's just, a, no, it's just, it's a, like that one person you talked to said it's a very, it, like it's a way of thinking. But again, uh, he might be coming at it from a place of, uh, if you don't mind my asking, uh, actually, no, never mind. That's really an inappropriate question. Ask no, it, no, no, ask no, I was just, ask it. No, I was just question? talking about, was, was he living independent of his folks? Because no, like, not me, at the time. One of the things that I learned, uh, okay, okay, so that, that does change things up for me. Because to me, uh, I recognize I come from a very privileged situation where I am able to live independent of my folks. I'm able to like handle, uh, right. uh, I'm able to like pay rent. I, I I have a job, and so to me, I I, I like to make it very clear uh, in my show, in my book, uh, whatever it may be, that uh, I am not speaking on behalf of the community, and uh, I I simply want to communicate my own experiences that are yes tethered to ASD, but that in itself uh, exists in a microcosm. So yeah, no, that, that, that's, that's totally cool that he was saying that and, and was thinking those things. Uh, in my experience, I've had a lot of other people that, that are kind of like me in my similar uh, situation. 
that that kind of get up in arms about when people try to say like, oh, I think so-and-so needs a little more help. And they're like, get away from us. We don't need your help. And I kind of go like, well, no, because that's, uh, you don't need help necessarily. And even then you might still need assistance in other ways, but uh, let's not uh, speak on behalf of people that can't, you know, that, that mm-hmm. don't have a forum or a platform to speak up because they might very well have something that, uh, that needs to be uh, catered for. Right. But you're talking about my folks. And uh, here's the thing. I did a little research because like people don't exactly know where it came from because there's there's several theories like uh, people think that there's environmental theories for the longest time i used to think it was hereditary until i found out that neither of my folks had asd but if you that's took, basically my question exactly but if you took my mom and you took my dad and you put them together i would make sense really yes wow okay. no I, I, wow. I, I i get what you're saying that's I'm, interesting. And, I, and i'm curious to hear more no, that was it. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> you either know them or you don't. <laughs> yeah, but, but but like you said, it's like, yeah, you compound the anal retentiveness of my dad right. with like the with all the anxiety prone catastrophizing of my mom. And you go, there you go. Yeah, there, it is. there you go. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we made one. We made a Michael. So. Can you talk a bit about your book? Yeah. Sure. That was a, that was a really fun process because uh, it just came out, right? Yeah, it did. It came out uh, back in March. Hit shelves there. Uh, they're releasing more copies. It's uh, what I'm really glad is that it's reached the base that I intended to reach, uh, which was sort of like uh, autistic. I'd say uh, late teens, early adults. Except the really funny thing was that uh, my publisher got back to me and said, like, "Hey, uh, it's actually apparently testing really well with kids. Mm-hmm. Could you go back and take out this one part where you swear?" Oh. And I said, "Yeah, totally. I'll totally do that." Except uh, I'm now kind of excited because I went. Dude, for the first like couple thousand books that were released with the swear in it, that's a collector's item. That's your. Yeah, it's awesome. You got what's it called? You got to read the one that said fuck. Title. Uh, So yeah, it's called. uh, Sorry, it's called Funny. You don't look autistic. And uh, getting back to the spectrum there, um, that title came from an experience where I was at another friend's book signing, and this lady came up to me and we started talking about ASD somehow, and she was kind of doing like this kind of Leslie Ferris sort of like you know the kind of response of like. Yeah, it's foreign and different to me, so it doesn't exist. And right. so I was kind of going like, eh, not necessarily. I mean, I have autism. And then she went, no, you don't. You're doing great. <laughs> 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 I don't think the two are mutually exclusive, you know? Yeah, yeah. So to me, uh, that's where that title came from, where I went like, hey, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, again, there's a lot of type, uh, uh, getting back to the spectrum thing, and I keep reiterating that phrase, but like there's there's whole communities that don't get noticed in mainstream pop culture. Like uh, what you associate with autism and pop culture is, uh, I, I call it the Sheldon Cooper characterization, even though Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory was never conceived as autistic. Right. It was just someone mm. that people were connecting to in the same way that the uh, a, a lot of writers, uh, you know, they just write what they know and they take from, uh, take like the guy who wrote The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, mm-hmm. who uh, was really just taking from people that he knew in his life or like the author uh graham simpson who wrote a great uh trilogy called the rosie trilogy same thing like he said he worked in uh, the computer industry for the longest time and says yeah i just kind of took from who i know and that just happened to connect with a base mm-hmm. that then kind of informed the way that he wrote him uh in later installments or not necessarily informed but he was conscious of how people with asd were engaging with it and he wanted to hear what they thought and i guess what i was trying to say uh, before I completely derailed myself there, <laughs> excuse the digression. No, no. Was uh, sorry. Uh, we were talking about uh, what were we talking about? It was um, the book, right? Yeah. Sorry, we were talking about the book. Yeah. So what I wanted to make clear from the outset was that uh, what you see in a lot of uh, autism-related pop culture is uh, what you see is. A brilliant nerd is the characterization I call mm. that. What you never see is an extrovert. What you never really see, uh, yeah. save for like maybe Mozart and the Whale, right. uh, 
And even then, I, I can't quite recall if she is officially uh, diagnosed in that canon. Like, you don't see uh, females on the spectrum. You don't see people on the autism spectrum operating within generic parameters. It's always within a dramatic context mm-hmm. where the central force of antagonism is their own autism. And uh, there's a movie that came out called Please Stand By that really frustrated me because, and not even the movie itself, if it came out 10 years ago, it probably wouldn't bug me so much. But the premise of it is that Dakota Fanning plays a young autistic woman who uh, is trying to enter like a Star Trek fan fiction contest to get a script made. And I said, I don't give two shits about an autistic uh, Star Trek fan fiction writer. I want to see an autistic captain of the USS Enterprise, <laughs> which is why even though these movies, uh, this, these movies are right. kind of trashy, like say like Power Rangers or The Accountant, I think that's inching towards a kind of progress where you're going like, oh, it, it's, it's a character who might be informed in some way by their autism, but they're dealing with external threats. Like in The Accountant, it, it, it's a hitman movie, basically, or in The Power Rangers, it's a superhero film. But everything that you're saying in conjunction with what Harry asked you earlier about this futuristic perspective, what I'm hearing here is a lot of that. You're opening up possibilities. Sure. And, and, and to me, that, in a sense is what the future is about, about acceptance. Yeah, you know, and I, I think it sounded, I think, I, I don't know why I was being, uh, I sounded so contrarian at the time, because there's a lot of things I, I believe and agree with, which is that uh, we are opening the door to uh, collaboration with different modes of experience that we have, exactly. that, 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 a, that a mainstream audience in North America has yet to see. So like uh, one of the biggest uh, things that was actually uh, a, like a watershed moment for ASD and media was with the characterization of, uh, I think her name is Julia on uh, Sesame Street. It was, mm. an, it was an autistic Hensing oh, character. Right. Yes. And here's the thing, the Henson yeah, company right. who, you know, great reputation for like collaborating with people and being very open to like kind of have them in the writer's room had members of the uh, several members of the autism self-advocacy network in that writer's room to construct that character. Oh. And that's inching towards something really good. But even then, that character is still a collection of quirks and characteristics to educate people. I'm hoping we can inch towards something like you said, not just uh, like I'm happy that we've gotten to a point where it's like, oh, you have genre film or even like uh, TV shows, procedurals like uh, The Good Doctor, where it's like, oh, the bad guy isn't his autism. The bad guy is like uh, a failed technocracy that refuses to accommodate him. I'm hoping we can inch to a point where it's like, yeah, we have like stars who are autistic, like say in the uh, the Broadway uh, version, or sorry, I don't know if it was Broadway, but the stage version of The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, where the main actor was the uh, on the spectrum. Not just the character, the actor who played ah. him for that production oh. was on the spectrum, oh, really? which was really huge. Wow. And I'm hoping we can have cast and crew alike that are on the spectrum and uh, advocating for themselves and uh, and telling their own stories. And, and getting away ultimately from movies like Rain Man, which really set a tone, right? Yeah. For how people perceived autism. Which is interesting because the uh, the real life figure that Raymond Babbitt was based on actually didn't have ASD. He had a, a kind of a savant syndrome. And I, I actually... Uh, well, I, sorry, I, what syndrome? It, it was a kind of savant syndrome. Savant. Oh, uh, like right. It, it wasn't savant syndrome, but it was okay. a kind of that. Uh, mm. We could probably look it up right now if you want to look it up, uh, if you want to Google it. But it was it was the real life inspiration for Raymond Babbitt, and that sort of informed people's understandings of autism, even though he himself was not on the spectrum officially. Uh, okay, interesting. And, and that was a movie made with the best of intentions. But like again, you look at that kind of a movie, and you go, "This is a movie about Tom Cruise's character. This is a movie about his emotional arc where he grows to accept his brother, not about his brother working towards uh, exactly. like right. a, a, a form right. of self actualization." Yeah. Did you enjoy the movie? Oh yeah, no. Well, here's the thing: Rain Man's still a good. Rain Man is a good movie. Like it's a great road movie. It's uh, yeah. it, it, it functions perfectly fine, and and I think it's better than a lot of the movies that were inspired by it. Frankly speaking, uh, yeah. uh like I, I think we've had kind of a glut 
of uh, really awful entertainment that came after that. Like I'd say like the Nadir was uh, was I Am Sam, which like Tropic yeah. Thunder made fun yeah. of. Yeah. Yeah. Where like so I Am can, Sam, right? which what you should watch actually is do a double feature. Yeah. It might hurt, but it's like, watch <laughs> I Am Sam and then watch the, it's on the uh, DVD special features disc. It's called I Am Sam Backstage Pass, uh, where they have an interview with Connie Nielsen and how she did research for the movie. And you can tell that she is trying so hard to not accidentally say the R word. Right. It's really embarrassing. Like, it's really like, there's a part of her, uh-huh. she's kind of going like, well, you know, I was kind of inspired <laughs> because like, I-, I thought that there was like this really, w- there was a watershed moment where suddenly you had all these parents who were having kids uh, like uh, that, that, that had these, <laughs> these uh, challenges, if you will. And, uh, and, and then when she said, sorry, I'm kind of messing it up right here. And like, and, and this is kind of paraphrasing, but go look up the interview. And she basically says something like, uh, and you know, I, I just, just thought what a perfect analogy for parenting because when we both when we were thrown into a situation where we don't know what we're doing we all feel kind of challenged and you're like jesus lady well, while you're and that wasn't long ago so while you're on the subject of movies and so on i mean you've got a quite an extensive collection of blu-ray and DVD. yeah yeah well, what is it about all these movies that you find so captivating oh well what i think it's great about movies is just um Abel Ferreira had a term for this where he called it, you sort of have your first ever like cinematic event. And I don't mean like an event movie, but like a moment where you become conscious of the fact that this was made. So for him, it was like Bambi. For me, it was like watching the interrogation scene from Blade Runner, which I talk about in depth in my book, where you just kind of go, oh, uh, you're simultaneously connecting to something so specific. And that gets you questioning about the, the series of decisions made to get you there. And then you go like, not only was this made by someone, it was made by several people. It was made by maybe hundreds of people right. contributing to uh, create a single image. And that's totally fascinating. And I, I think it's probably my favorite best art form because while it might be the most esoteric of the art forms, you know, it's not like music or comedy where it's just, oh, it's so ego driven in one person. In mm-hmm. film, it's like you have so many people. Collaborative. Contrib- yeah, exactly. Contributing to make one thing and not even the film mm. as a whole. I mean, one image at a time. Yeah, one part. Part of the film. Exactly. And that's, and when you look at what you can achieve, it's, it's insane, especially when you look at like films made on a micro budget, films made during uh, radical changes in culture. Like you look at everything from like the Japanese golden age, you know, after like Douglas MacArthur like pulled out and uh, like the American armed forces pulled out. And so like suddenly the American imperialists are gone. The Japanese imperialists are neutered. We can tell any story we want. We want. Mm-hmm. You just get a camera and you just go out there and do it. And so uh, you got all those great filmmakers like Kobayashi and uh, Kurosawa doing the thing. To me, I just think that what's so cool about film is that it can inspire people to action, but groups to action. And I think that kind of collaboration is really important. Now, let me ask you this. Aside from the comedy, aside from the movies, just you as a person, Michael, at 23 in this kind of crazy world of ours, what do you make of this world? What do, what do you mm-hmm. see for this world of ours? Are you hopeful? Uh, it's stupid and it's great. That's what it's I see. Stupid about. and it's great. No, hey, it's that's like, exactly how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, like it's just it's hard not to be pessimistic now. Yeah, no. And, and I'm not even talking about political climate. I'm just talking about the fact that the, there are needs that need to be met for people and the planet yeah. that that simply aren't. And I'm cautiously optimistic that right now we are experiencing a paradigm shift where uh, you have some of these outsider movements kind of go like, hey, uh, regardless of what you, uh, like where you lean politically, a change is coming. And uh, basically the planet is fighting us off like how uh, white blood cells fight a cold. So we need to, (laughs) 
just start taking more drastic measures to, to fix things. And to me, it's like, I, I think there's been a really interesting kind of call to action. I think there's some great people doing some great things and really standing up and being fearless in the face of uh, not only like advertisement, but like very kind of harsh criticism going like- And no, ridicule. Yeah, exactly. Going like, hey, I'm willing to take the pie in the face to do the right thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Like people yeah. are dying, the planet's dying. We got to do something. Yeah. I'm kind of humbled to exist in this time because it's like, wow, it's like uh, kind of like what my dad was talking about. He's going like, yeah, this is uh, uh, there's change going on constantly. And like a lot of people say this is like the 60s. And I go, no, this is like every day everywhere. We're just conscious of it now. People go like there are so many bad things happening in the world right now. and go, yeah, but there's so many victories that you can look into and go like, yeah, look at like people like fighting to get something and winning. And I'm saying that there's definitely like the bad outweighs the good. But uh, but the fact is we are conscious of the fact that there is a good and things worth fighting for. And uh, I'm really moved. Well said. Well mm-hmm. said. Mm-hmm. It's not even just the change. It's the speed of change. Yeah. There's always been change, but now it seems to be exponential. Oh, it's radical. Like I'd say in the last decade alone. From what I'm getting from you is that the kind of the high V mind of someone who's on the spectrum is in some ways more equipped to handle the changes that are coming at us so fast because you're quick to pick up on all the nuances and all the details, yeah, well, right? Well, again, I'd be apprehensive to call it a, like a hive mind because that implies that we're tuned in like the Borg. Like, like we can sort of, in, uh, <laughs> like we get, we, like, like that, but that implies that we're conforming to like a mass ideologue and I don't want to do that. It's like, yeah, I, I yeah. like to think that we live in a culture where like there's a myriad of experiences right. and niches and, and everybody can contribute by virtue of uh, having things that no one else can do. Yeah. The sheer speed of your speech is matching the speed of your brain. Yeah, I actually found out a reason for that, and there's a scientific reason for that, and it's because the average human being speaks about 130 words a minute. Correct. Whereas I speak about 170 because I work out. (laughs) 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 On that note... Do you have any events coming up? Uh, is there yeah, a website that you'd I like do. people to access? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I, uh, you can follow me on Michael McCreary uh, hyphen Aspie comic on Facebook, uh, uh which I'll give you all of my events. There's like a little section there that I'll show you if I have any uh, tours coming up. Uh, I'm doing Accent on Toronto this October, which oh. is going to be a great show. A lot of comics. Uh, Arthur yeah. Simeon's hosting. Okay. Cool. Uh, wonderful lineup of people. It's going to be a fun show. So uh, that's the next thing that I'm doing. Awesome. Listen, Michael, thank you so much for coming. Appreciate it. Right into the studio, our first in-studio interview ever. The the first time we've ever done one Ever done one live. Oh, wow. uh, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) You're forgiven. Has it it helped you? No, no. And actually, I really want to thank this because, and I'm going to say this to the viewer, uh, Peter was awesome because uh, he went, you know, uh, we we record this in a linen closet. Do you want (laughs) to, can we do this over the phone? And I said... I I cannot read people over the phone. Like, I, again, uh, kind of like uh, defying that sort of ASD stereotype. Uh, it's not a matter of like, oh, you know, I avoid eye contact because it's like, I don't want to. No, it's the opposite. It's like, I kind of need something to play off of. Or, or like a, or like a reaction, or like a head nod, or something, just to know that people are picking up what I'm putting down. Exactly. So, uh, you guys, uh, thanks again for uh, making this happen for me. Well, thank, thank you. you. It's been a real treat. Seriously. Yeah, I think I am the third person to see the inside of your house. Yeah, that's so right. I, no, don't kill me. <laughs> and listen, for all you listeners out there who are fascinated with Michael's delivery today and the content of what he was saying, send us a note, a comment. Yeah. We've got a comment button. You can leave an audio comment or just leave a. This guy sucks. Like this guy sucks. We'd seriously love to hear from you. And if we do hear from you, we'd be happy to pass it on to Michael as well. All right. right. Thanks a lot, guys. Till next time. Ciao. Ciao. It's your thing. It's your thing. Do what you want to do now. I can tell you who to sock it to.
The Sill Podcast, Perspectives on Art and Technology, is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com. It's your thing.